0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Molly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, and today's subject has been requested by multiple listeners, uh, especially when we first came on the podcast. We came on uh, just after kind of the 100th anniversary of the event we're talking about today. And so it had been covered by a number of papers uh, and had kind of been in people's minds a little bit more. Uh, it's actually been on my list for almost since the beginning. And we haven't had an Axe Murderer episode in a little while. So we're due, I suppose, as due as one can be for such things. Uh, this one has some haunting mythology around it. Uh, it remains an unsolved case, so it's good for the Halloween season. And it's probably no surprise, based on the fact that I have already said this is an axe murderer episode. But just to be safe, here's the warning. This is some graphic talk of some pretty brutal murders, and particularly uh, the deaths of children, which I know can be really difficult for some people to hear. So if you are sensitive to violent subjects of this nature, or if you listen with younger history buffs, this is maybe one to proceed with caution or to pre-screen. Uh for example, I can already tell you my best friend is not going to partake of this one. She and I were talking about it while I was researching. Uh and as a parent for her, it's just too rough to listen to this kind of stuff and the story is incredibly tragic. And even I, I mean I'm I'm often quite open that I'm not really a kids person. Um Uh, It took me a long time to research because I would find that I just had to get up and walk away for a while. Because it's just, it's brutal and it's hard to think about somebody doing the things that this person or persons did. So we are talking about the Villisca axe murders. And before we get into the details of the actual event, I will let Tracy set the scene a little bit about the town of Villisca, Iowa. Yeah,
0: so Villisca, Iowa, this took place in 1912. Velisca is in Montgomery County, and it's only about four square kilometers in size, so not, not really big. Omaha, Nebraska, and Des Moines, Iowa are the nearest large metro areas, and Velisca is roughly in between them and a little bit south.
1: Yeah, it's a little closer to one side than the other, but for the purposes of this, in between. And in the early 1900s, this was a town that was on a growth trajectory. It was kind of rural, but there was a budding business community. The train depot was very busy. They had a lot of uh, trains coming and going and visitors and business people. And it was a close-knit community.
0: Josiah B. Moore, who was the father of the family at the center of this whole unsettling crime, was 43 in 1912. He's sometimes referred to as J.B., and he had lived in Villisca for 13 years when he died and was a respected businessman. He had married Sarah Montgomery on December 6, 1899.
1: And Sarah had been born in Illinois in 1873, and she moved to Iowa in 1894 when the rest of her family moved there. Uh, She was 39 at the time of the murders.
0: The Moors had four children. Herman was 11 and was also really close to his father. Catherine was their second child, and she was age 10 at the time of the attack. There were also two younger brothers, Boyd, who was seven, and Paul, who was five.
1: And there are two other children that were uh, victims in this case. So on the morning of June 9th of 1912, sisters Lena, who was 12, and Ina, who was eight, Stillinger, uh, they were the daughters of Joseph and Sarah Stillinger, attended Sunday services at the Presbyterian Church. And the girls were intending to visit with their grandmother for the day after church had concluded. And then the plan for the rest of the day was that the girls would then go back to church to attend special Children's Day activities in the evening before returning to their grandmother's house to spend the night.
0: But the evening's plans changed when Catherine Moore invited her two friends to spend the night at the Moore house after the Children's Day activities, J.B. Moore called the Stillinger home on the phone. He left a message with Lena and Ina's older sister Blanche to pass along to their parents that they would be spending the evening with them. So, you know, one of those parenting heads up calls. Your kids are going to stay over here. If this was in part because the girls seemed kind of afraid to walk back to their grandmother's house alone in the dark.
1: Yeah, the Children's Day program led by Sarah Moore uh, began at 8 p.m., so this was an evening thing. It would have been quite dark when they concluded uh, at 9.30 p.m. And once the festivities were all wrapped up, the entire Moore family and the two young Stillinger sisters walked back to the Moore home and arrived there, it's estimated, somewhere between 9.45 and 10 p.m. On the morning of June
0: 10th, the Moore's next-door neighbor, Mary Peckham, noticed that the house was unusually quiet. She hadn't seen any of the family come outside or start their normal morning chores. So sometime shortly after 7 a.m., Mrs. Peckham walked over to the Moore house and knocked on the door.
1: Uh She got no response, and so she tried the door and found it locked. And this is one of those areas that there is some conflicting information in various records. So many will say this was actually pretty unusual for the door to have been locked. Uh The habitual locking of doors at night was not really particularly common practice at this time in Villisca, or in fact, many other places, you know, in the early 1900s, there just wasn't that sort of level of uh lockdown at the end of the night.
0: Mrs. Peckham, who was troubled and also wanted to help, uh, let the Moore's chickens out as the family would normally have done themselves in the morning. And then she also telephoned Ross Moore, who was Josiah's brother.
1: And when Ross Moore arrived at the home of his brother's family, he shouted and he knocked. He attempted to peer into the house through the windows, but they were covered uh, and he got neither reaction nor information like he couldn't. There was nothing. So eventually he went through his keys until he found uh, the one that unlocked the door. Like he had a copy of their key, but it took him a little while to sort out which one it was.
0: Mary Peckham was there with Ross Moore, but she didn't venture past the porch and into the house. The surviving Moore brother didn't go past the second room of the house. He opened the door to the bedroom off the parlor, and he immediately saw the bodies of two children on the bed, as well as an enormous amount of blood. He went back to the porch and told Mary Peckham to call the police.
1: Yeah, and this is a very small, I mean, by today's standards, home. So the bottom floor was only three rooms. It was like the parlor, the front room, this small bedroom, and a kitchen. So after they raised an alert, uh, City Marshal Hank Horton responded. He quickly arrived on the scene, and his investigation of the house revealed that in addition to the two bodies Ross Moore had seen, the young Stillinger sisters, there were six more bodies upstairs. The entire Moore family and their guests had been killed in their beds. It was
0: about nine in the morning when the county coroner finally got there and took a look at the situation. He later reviewed his findings with the sheriff and the marshal, and then he called a
1: coroner's jury to the home. So once word spread of what had happened uh, in a small community, these things do spread rather quickly, many townspeople made their way to the scene, and this ended up being a real problem. We've talked about similar things happening before with crime scenes. So these people were all there. They were very interested, and so keeping the crime scene intact became something of an impossibility. There were accounts of dozens of people at a time walking through the house kind of with a, you know, morbid curiosity, uh, trying to catch a glimpse of the bodies or see what had happened. Some reports even put it at close to a 100 people at one point that were all in the house, which, again, was not that large a structure. So you can imagine, like, keeping evidence intact was completely out the window at that point.
0: I am irritated by these looky-loos. <laughs> Yes. Eventually, the Velisca National Guard had to come and clear the area and keep onlookers out of the house. By that time, several hours had passed and a lot of the evidence was damaged or compromised, which just infuriates me. I want to take all the looky-loos for a a stern lecture about how not to be terrible.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I I have read some uh, there was I forget which account it was that I was reading where they were kind of pointing out, like, yes, this was terrible. But even so, there's maybe wouldn't have been that much more evidence that was really garnered in the investigation. um, But we don't know. So the coroner's jury did not finish their investigation of the home until after 10 p.m. And it was at that point that the undertaker was given clearance to remove the bodies. Uh, those were taken to a local fire station, which was being used as kind of a makeshift morgue because it was so many people at once. Uh, and the undertakers did not finish moving the victims until roughly 2 a.m. Uh, so before we get into kind of the grisly stuff, uh, do you want to have a quick word from a sponsor so we don't interrupt all of this yuckness with an ad? Let's do! And now we will jump back to discussing the horrific events at Velisca.
0: Despite the herd of looky-loos who had passed through the crime scene, there were some solid facts that they were able to glean about these murders.
1: Yes, yeah, so the doors to the house, all of the doors were locked. And as we mentioned earlier, many people believed that this was not a normal state of affairs. The curtains in
0: every room of the house had been closed. And in the case of two windows that had no curtains, Mrs. Moore's clothing had been used to cover them.
1: Uh, and I left it out of these notes, but her clothing had also been used to cover all of the mirrors in the house. Well that, now I'm scared. <laughs> don't be scared. I don't, I don't mean to laugh, it is tragic and creepy, but I don't want Tracy to be scared. No, genuinely, uh, and
0: you said that, I had a shudder. <laughs>
1: sorry. So, uh, to get more serious, all eight of these victims have been bludgeoned, apparently in their sleep, with an axe. And each victim's head had been covered with bed linens or articles of clothing after their skulls had been crushed. Uh, based on the medical examination of the bodies, it's believed that the murders took place shortly, somewhere between shortly after midnight and 3 a.m. So it's kind of a three-hour window.
0: In the two rooms where Josiah and Sarah Moore and Lena and Ina Stillinger had been killed, kerosene lamps were found at the ends of the beds with their chimneys removed and their wicks turned back. Uh, as though the killer had wanted to dim the lights.
1: The murder weapon had been Josiah Moore's. Uh, It was found in the room with Lena and Ina, and the ceilings in several of the rooms had been hit during the killer's upswing as he raised the axe. On the kitchen table, there was a plate of food and a pan of water,
0: and the water had blood in it.
1: The downstairs bedroom where the Stillinger girls were slain contained a number of clues and sort of odd aspects. Uh, Ina was sleeping on the portion of the bed closest to the wall when she was killed and a coat had been used to cover her face afterwards. Uh, Lena was situated partway down the bed. This led to some speculation that she may have uh, been struck and then shifted or wiggled down the bed a little bit initially before she died. She was wearing no undergarments and her nightgown had been shifted upward. Uh, there was blood on the inside of one of her knees and injuries to one arm, which appeared to be defensive, uh, as though she had tried to protect herself against the attacker. She is the only one that exhibited any sort of defensive injury. There was a two-pound
0: slab of bacon on the floor, wrapped in what was either a rag or a dish towel, and there was a nearly identical slab of bacon in the kitchen icebox.
1: And additionally, there was part of a keychain on the floor, and I—I uh, I know what some of you people are probably thinking based on a couple of these details, and I promise you, we are coming back to them. Now we will get to sort of the coroner's inquest. The
0: day after the grisly discovery, so on June 11th, the coroner's jury began their official inquest into the murders, and they eventually called 14 witnesses for testimony.
1: So their first witness was Mary Peckham, who, uh, you know, was the first woman, the neighbor, that discovered that there was something not quite right. And she stated that the last time she saw the family was when they were leaving for the Children's Day activities at the church on the evening of the 9th. She was already in bed when the family returned home, and she said that she didn't hear any noises during the night. Uh, she relayed how she came to be curious about the family's whereabouts in the morning because of the unusual stillness of the house, uh, and that she had seen Mr. Moore's employee, Ed Selly, arrive and head to the barn to tend the horses not long after she contacted Ross Moore. The
0: second witness was Ed Selly, and as we just said, he was an employee at J.B. Moore's store. And his testimony indicated that he'd opened the store as normal the morning of the discovery before being contacted by Ross Moore about the suspicious situation. After speaking with the victim's sister-in-law, Jessie Moore, Selly contacted the Moore's parents and Sarah's parents to see if the family had gone to visit any of them. So at that point, they were trying to figure out where they were, not realizing they were in the house. He was then contacted by Mrs. Peckham about the Moore's livestock, so he left the store to tend to the horses and then went back to work. Not long after, Mrs. Peckham called again, this time to tell him to get the marshal and come back to the house.
1: And Sully's testimony, uh, it contradicts Mary Peckham's just a little bit, and it's not really anything terribly important. I just wanted to point it out. Uh, he indicated that he had joined Mrs. Peckham and Ross Moore in entering the house, whereas Mrs. Peckham indicated that she had never gone past the porch. After the marshal had a preliminary look at the scene,
0: Sally indicated that the house was blocked and that he went to the store to contact business associates about the situation.
1: Yeah, he wanted to let the people that they had business dealings with know that Uh, Mr. Moore had been killed and that they were going to have to make some arrangements. Sally was asked if J.B. Moore had any enemies he knew of, and he indicated that J.B. had told him that his brother-in-law, Sam Moyer, had it in for him. The third witness was Dr. J. Clark Cooper.
0: Cooper was the first physician on the scene after the bodies were discovered. Cooper described his first access to the bodies First, encountering the Stillinger girls who he didn't recognize. He also mentioned the lamps without their chimneys. Cooper indicated that he didn't touch the bodies on site. He sort of performed just a visual assessment at that point.
1: Yeah, he didn't do uh, any real hands on examination. His statement also included that estimated time of death that we talked about, and that was based on his uh, observation of the blood and brain matter on the scene and the level of dryness and congealment it had achieved. Uh, he was also the one that introduced the detail that the faces he believed had been covered after the bludgeoning. And this was based on the fact that none of the covering fabrics were stuck to the wounds. they had just kind of been draped over afterwards. And none of those fabrics or articles of clothing had any holes or damage of any kind other than normal wear and tear.
0: Witness four was Jesse Moore, who was Ross Moore's wife. Jessie spoke with Mrs. Peckham when she first called for Ross, and her statement echoed Ed Selley's regarding what their conversations were like. She also mentioned that she later entered Josiah's and Sarah's home to retrieve photographs of the family for the local paper, and she didn't know of any possible enemies that the family might have had.
1: Yeah, there are some accounts that suggest that she had gone in and kind of like posed for pictures uh, but those seem like embellishments. She did go in, but she was trying to get pictures from the household for the press um, so that they could be used in news stories. Uh, witness number five was Dr. F.S. Williams. And whereas Dr. Cooper, that we mentioned just a few moments ago, had only done a visual inspection on the bodies at the crime scene, Dr. Williams was the one that actually examined the bodies. Um, his testimony described the crushed heads of each victim and their positions in their beds. Uh And he was the one that introduced the idea that Lena Stillinger had squirmed on the bed after having been struck.
0: Some people have theorized over the years that Lena had been sexually assaulted. But Dr. Williams' testimony runs really counter to that. He indicated that he had investigated the possibility of a rape, but he didn't find any evidence of that kind of violation.
1: Yeah, she was the one we mentioned. She didn't have any undergarments on and that her nightdress had been shifted up. Uh, She may have been the object of some, um, you know, visual stimulation for the killer, but her body was not in any way um, molested to the best of this doctor's knowledge. Uh, Witness number six was Edward Landers and Landers was uh, a neighbor. He was actually the son of a neighbor. He was staying a few houses down from the Moors. Uh, at his mother's house for the summer. And he stated that he had gone to bed shortly after 9 p.m. on the night of the murders, but that he had heard a noise during the night that to him at the time sounded like people hooting to one another outdoors. And he was kind of pressed by the examiners over what time this might have been, and he guessed it was probably around 11 p.m., but he wasn't certain. Uh, And after the news of the murders broke the next morning, he began to wonder if the noise that he had heard had not been people hooting, but in fact, a woman moaning. The
0: seventh witness was Ross so Josiah's brother. And he relayed the events of the morning of the 10th and how he had come to discover the bodies of the two Stillinger girls before exiting the home. He mentioned that before opening the bedroom door and making the discovery, nothing in the home seemed like it was out of place. And he also couldn't offer any information about possible enemies that the family may have had.
1: Uh, Witness number eight was Fenwick Moore, and this was another Moore brother. There were several brothers in the mix here. Uh, His testimony was not particularly illuminating. He indicated that he really didn't know anything about his brother's business or if he had any enemies, and he was dismissed from the stand pretty quickly.
0: The ninth witness was Marshal Hank Horton, and the marshal's testimony was really brief. He basically said, He'd been contacted by Selly to go into the Moore home. He corroborated entering the house with Selly and then again with the doctors.
1: Witness number 10 was Lee Van Gilder, and this was Josiah's nephew, but he also did not have a whole lot of information to impart. He had briefly been considered a suspect because he had some kind of shady uh, happenings in his background. His record was not entirely clean, but he was cleared pretty early on.
0: Witness 11 was another Moore brother, Harry Moore, and he also had really nothing new to add in the proceedings. Like Finwick, his other brother, he had neither knowledge of JB's business nor of any possible ill intentions against him.
1: Witness 12 was Blanche Stillinger, and remember this was Lena and Ina's older sister. She was the one that had spoken with Josiah over the phone about the girl sleeping over at the Moore house, and she was the one that kind of said, yeah, I think that will be fine. I will tell my parents.
0: And the 13th witness was uh, Joseph Stillinger, so Lena and Ina's father. He also didn't know of anyone who might commit such a crime, and he indicated that his wife had phoned the Moors several times in the morning, uh, the morning that the bodies were found, because she had expected the girls to be back before school time.
1: Yeah, this had happened on a Sunday night into the Monday morning hours. And so she thought the kids were going to come home and get ready for school, but they didn't. So they were trying to contact them and getting no answer. Uh The lapsed witness was Charles Moore. This is yet another Moore brother. Charles testified to the coroner's jury that he knew Josiah kept an axe. But when he was questioned, he couldn't say with certainty that the murder weapon was the one that. Josiah owned. He just wasn't sure. Uh He also indicated that it was, in fact, his brother's habit to lock the house from the inside at night. Um, one thing that always kind of rings odd to me and is not really discussed all that much in a lot of these is that the whole house was locked, but somehow the killer or killers got out so that's always stayed a little bit of a mystery, whether they had a key or not is unclear. Yeah, well, and uh, then that
0: gets into me super wondering what lock technology was like at the time. Like, now we have right. doorknob locks that you just flip the thing and then you go out.
1: Well, and there was also, you know, uh, skeleton keys that could open multiple doors were a little more common still then. Uh, you know, it just wasn't quite the same as what we're dealing with today. So and that may be one of the reasons that it's not really talked about that much. It's not that insane a thing it's not like uh, even in some of the and I'll I'll talk about them briefly at the end but even in like some of the um, sort of supernatural investigations of it it doesn't really seem to come up as like a weird thing like an entity locked all the doors uh, doors are just locked they don't really it doesn't get embellished a whole lot but uh, before we start talking about suspects and what may have driven someone to do this let's have another quick word from a sponsor we'll take a break from all of this sort of dark material for just a moment so to return to this
0: horrifying subject, there were many early leads in this case and really no shortage of suspects, but nothing ever panned out. And this horrific crime is still unsolved. It's uh, not possible in the scope of a podcast episode to cover every single sus- suspect, but we're going to talk about the more high profile ones.
1: Yeah, this really sort of turned this town on its head and a lot of people characterize it as basically making a place where people would invite a stranger into their home for a meal and, you know, be very open and very friendly into a place where suddenly everyone was suspicious of everyone else. And, uh, you know, f- sort of fear-driven suspicion kind of led their behavior beyond that. And as a consequence, a lot of different people were accused of pr- participating in this crime. But uh one of the, the primary suspects that comes up in almost any discussion of this case, is Frank F. Jones, and he was an Iowa state senator. He had been Josiah Moore's boss for many years, but in 1908, Moore had struck out on his own, opening a farming implement company, and he took several of uh, their lucrative business partners with him, including the John Deere Company. So Jones was a little irate with him from that point on.
0: There were also rumors that Josiah had had an affair with Jones' daughter-in-law. So Frank Jones and his son, so the husband of this daughter-in-law, were even accused quite publicly by a detective agency of having hired a killer named William Mansfield to take out the Moore family.
1: And William Mansfield was arrested for the murders in 1916, four years after they had taken place. According to Detective James Newton Wilkerson, who had been the one that had leveled those accusations against the Joneses, uh, he asserted that Mansfield was in fact a serial killer and that he also had a cocaine habit. Uh, Mansfield was also linked uh, via Wilkerson's research to other brutal murders, including those of his own wife, child and his wife's family in 1914. So that would have been a couple years after Villisca, as well as murders in Kansas and Colorado. And in all of these cases, the victims were bludgeoned with an ax in homes where the windows and mirrors were all covered similar to the Moore slayings.
0: Detective Wilkerson was so convinced that Mansfield had been hired by Jones that he posted flyers all over town with Mansfield's face on them that read, This is the axe murderer. He murdered the Moore family at Belisca. The hypocrite whose dirty money paid for the hellish job wants your support for the state senate. Will he get it?
1: Which I'm sure delighted Jones. Uh... And I, I have to say, I think if you have just accused a man of hiring someone to kill a man who has made you angry, m- making him angry in this way seems like a really bold and foolish move. Uh, but while Mansfield does seem like an obvious solution to who killed the Moors, uh, and while Detective Wilkerson really seemed for the rest of his life that he was certain that that Mansfield was the, the killer... Uh, Mansfield had an alibi for the time of the Villisca murders that placed him in Illinois. Uh, there was some, uh, payroll happenings that indicated that he had, had been working there at the time. There were some eyewitnesses that placed Mansfield in Villisca and not Illinois, but none of those, uh, eyewitness accounts were ever substantiated and Mansfield was eventually set free.
0: After his release, Mansfield sued Wilkerson for slander and he was awarded more than $2,000. Wilkerson alleged that Jones had, in fact, managed to use his position of power to secure Mansfield's release.
1: Yeah, he also kind of blamed Jones for... uh orchestrating the decision in uh, Mansfield's favor during the slander case. And he suggested that Frank Jones set up the next suspect to kind of take the fall. And that next suspect was Reverend George Kelly, who was a preacher who had moved to Macedonia, Iowa in 1912. So after the trail went cold with Mansfield, Kelly was arrested and charged with the Moore murders in 1917. And he was in Villisca for the Children's Day activities, and he left town the next morning. He was even alleged at one point to have spoken of the murders on the train out of town, which was early in the morning before the bodies had even been discovered.
0: He also returned to Villisca a week after the murders, and he pretended to be a detective from Scotland Yard to gain entry into the Moore home. He actually had some mental problems that were on record, and Kelly was considered to be a sexual deviant, obsessed with sex and known to have been a peeping Tom. There have been some theories about the rolled-up bacon slab that was found downstairs in the bedroom had been used as a sexual aid, by the killer, and that made people really willing to connect the dots to to Kelly, who had this reputation.
1: Uh, Unlike Mansfield, Kelly actually did confess to the murders, and in his confession, he wrote, I killed the children upstairs first and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly came to my mind, and I picked up the axe, went into the house, and killed them. So that makes it seem like an open
0: and shut case, but it all fell apart. He wound up recanting his confession, and the witnesses that initially claimed he talked to them on the train about the murders before it was public knowledge all changed their story. He was also a really small man at 5 foot 2 inches tall, and he weighed less than 120 pounds. So the idea of him being able to deliver the crushing blows that killed the family was a little difficult to support. I imagine at that height, it might have been also difficult for the upswings of the axe to hit the ceiling.
1: Yes, Possibly. I couldn't find anything. Uh, I thought about that as well, and I couldn't find anything substantial. I'm sure I we could do it if uh, with a little bit more time to find out what the height of the ceilings were and the length of the axe. But I did not have time to work out the math on that. Uh, and while somebody that size could probably easily... Till children, uh, Mr. Moore was like six feet tall and weighed about 200 pounds. You know, he was a full grown man, so it, it seemed like that would have been a little bit more of a stretch for, uh, Kelly to be able to manage. Kelly was actually t- tried twice for this crime. Uh, the first trial resulted in a hung jury, and in the second trial, the jury freed him because there was really no evidence other than sort of the suspicion that he was weird and deviant and might be the kind of person to do these things.
0: The third suspect was Henry Lee Moore. And in May of 1913, almost a year after the murders, a federal investigator on the case named M.W. McClowry announced that he had solved it as well as 22 other similar cases. McClowry believed all of the slayings to be the work of serial killer Henry Lee Moore, who was not actually relation to the Moore family. It was not yet another Moore brother.
1: Yeah, it was just coincidental that they had the last name. Uh, a few months after the Velisca incident, Henry Moore was convicted of murdering his mother and grandmother in Missouri. Uh, the brutality of the victims was quite similar. They were bludgeoned with an axe and... Uh, It should be pointed out that one of the things that differs is that he was allegedly motivated by money in this. He was hoping to gain their assets after they died. As the Velisca investigation
0: had gone on, multiple similar axe murders were uncovered in Colorado, Illinois, and Kansas. And some of these were crimes Mansfield had also been linked to by other investigators. But McCleary thought they were all Henry Moore's doing.
1: Moore actually served 36 years of his life sentence for the deaths of his mother and grandmother. Uh, and then he was paroled in 1949. Uh, he ended up having his sentence commuted some years later when he was in his 80s. Uh, he, he kind of falls off the public record after that. No one really knows like where he went or how he died. Uh, but he was never formally charged for the murders in Villisca, despite McClowry's insistence that he was clearly the one who had done it.
0: In addition to these three high-profile suspects, there were so, so many others. And initially, it was because of the shocking nature of the homicide. Citizens of Vallisca suspected anyone who wasn't from around there. Some of them were legitimately suspect, although not, not ever actually linked to the murders. And some of them were simply guilty of being strangers.
1: And uh, I wanted to make a note about the similarities among the murders uh, that were discovered in other states and other areas and the use of an axe as the murder weapon. It's worth considering just food for thought, that this was a time when almost every home would have an axe, uh, often readily accessible. Uh, Mike Dash, who is a writer that uh, wrote an article for the Smithsonian in 2012 about the Villisca killings, makes the point that this sort of could be considered a weapon of convenience for the times. Like in the Midwest, if you just wanted to go on a killing spree, an axe was pretty easy to get a hold of.
0: Additionally, as is the case often with high-profile crimes, confessors came out of the woodwork for decades. People were confessing to the crime well into the 1930s, although many of these confessions got details wildly wrong.
1: Yeah, you know, that that happens with any big uh, murder case. Or p- there are people that confess that could not have done it uh, for whatever reasons. But those, of course, were p- pretty easily dismissed in most cases. Um, so jumping to sort of the modern day, uh, in 1994, the house where J.B. Moore and his family were killed was purchased by Darwin and Martha Lynn, and the Lynns restored the house to its 1912 condition, and the residence was placed on the National Historic Places Registry in 1998. Uh, prior to the Lynn's purchase, the house had passed through many hands of ownership and it had been repeatedly renovated. So it was really quite a significant restoration effort.
0: Uh, today, you can tour the home. It's actually a museum. And for a little less than $500 a night, you can book sleepovers in the murder house. It's actually one of the main draws of uh, Velisco, which is a pretty rural town. If you want a book on the anniversary of the murders, though, there's a lottery. And there have been many discussions and debates through the years about whether it's right for a business to grow out of such a tragedy and so much brutality. Uh, These debates probably go on for as long as the museum is open.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of articles, if you search for this, uh, that talk about it kind of from the modern standpoint, they really do discuss kind of that this is a a problem and something that continues to be debated. and, And they kind of look at, like, the Velisca murder house is this odd money making machine, sort of, but uh, you know, that's something that you can draw your own conclusions and have your own opinions of Um, paranormal investigators and ghost hunters have of course kind of flocked to this house, hoping to get some activity that they can record or uh, discuss. It's been featured on a lot of numerous television reality. I'm making the air quotes shows. Uh, And there have been several documentaries made about the murders that are less about sensationalizing it and making a, a haunted house, ghost story, but really just trying to break down the actual crime. Um. I kind of feel like a a broken record when I do this wrap up because we do it for almost any of the cases where they go unsolved. But odds are that this one is not ever going to be solved. And the further away we get from the date of when it actually happened, the less and less evidence there will be to go on. Uh, So it will remain a draw for crime history buffs and visitors to the Villisca murder house. Uh, probably for quite some time. But that is the Velisca murders, uh, which, as I said, were were requested by a large number of people. Very unsettling and disturbing to think about. Uh, But, you know, good Halloween fodder. And again, it is a huge tragedy. I mean, like I said, I'm not a kid's person, but reading these testimonies about what happened to these children was so rough for me. Yeah. Kept I kept like going like, let's go hug a kitty. I'm gonna go watch a cartoon for fifteen minutes. Just anything to kind of break the intensity of that.
0: Well, and in addition to how I got genuinely creeped out sitting here when you said all the mirrors were covered up with her clothing. Um the part about their you know, the the parents of the children who were visiting the home calling over there because they were expecting them to be home for school, that really got to me.
1: It's it's very upsetting to think about. I mean these were you know, kids that were part of someone's lives, and it, it was just, it could be, it's one of those, this could happen to anyone kinds of things. Um, and I think especially when these kinds of crimes happen in rural communities that were very, you know, friendly and, and pretty free of this kind of thing, it's really shocking. It kind of reminds me of when I first read In Cold Blood by Dreamer Capote as a kid, because it's kind of a similar, there's some parallels there. Uh, it's hard to think about what a mental shift that has to be for the entire community to be like one day life is one way and the next day you see it all completely differently.
0: Yeah. There was a similar, actually, even at the same, similar time period uh, mass murder in the tiny, tiny rural town that I grew up in. And it, it had similar horrific elements and similar like family members found in their beds. And I was like, wow, this is uncanny when I got yeah. her outline. Can we move on to some perhaps less disturbing listener mail? It's so much less
1: disturbing. I have two short pieces because I know this episode has been a little bit lengthy uh, about Ethan Allen. And the first one is from uh, our listener, Hannah. And she says, hello, Tracy and Holly. My paternal grandfather made a hobby of tracing his family ancestry. My other three grandparents have straightforward lineages, but Papa's family was rather more convoluted. One of the things he discovered in his searching was that he was descended from Ethan Allen. And besides old, perhaps less than reliable records, the evidence of this is actually in the names of the men in my father's family. Back and back and back, the men of one of my grandfather's lines all have the middle name Allen, and variations thereupon in honor of perhaps their most famous progenitor. It's such a cool... I always love it when people have connections to history like that. Um, we got a lot after a fidois episode. uh and then there is another Ethan Allen one from our listener, uh, Vincent, and he says, love the podcast. And for some reason, I never wrote you all before, probably because I usually listen in the car. Uh, but today I happened to be at my desk when I finished listening to part two of your Ethan Allen podcast. I wanted to let you know how I first learned of him. Uh, I didn't learn his name from the furniture store. We didn't have one near me that I knew of until I was in high school. I actually learned his name from a box of pencils. I always wanted to draw comics as a kid, and I still draw them now, and once saw a photo of Charles M. Schultz's desk and got a good look at the brand of pencils he used. So I bought a box the next time I was in an office supply store to get school supplies. On my box of Dixon Ticonderoga number 2 pencils is the story of Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys. Uh, I kind of love that. I love that he got his connection to Ethan Allen 1, through pencils, which is sort of charming, and two that there's a Charles Schultz connection because perhaps one day we will discuss Peanuts on the podcast. Uh, if you would like to, oh, and I wanted to mention briefly before I go to that, uh I know we've gotten some flack over our pronunciation of Bella Lugosi's name. I will tell you why. It's because when I pronounce it correctly in the Hungarian language, which is Bela, I sound like the Count from Sesame Street, <laughs> and well, it just or like I mentioned to one of our. Uh, uh, fans that posted about it on Facebook, like or some Hungarian variation of Tina Fey's character from Muppets Most Wanted. It becomes very comedic, and I did not want to do that.
0: Well, and mine becomes comedic in an entirely different way that embarrasses me so much that I'm not even going to try to say it, because somehow <laughs> every ounce of Southern drawl that I have makes oh, it I into could see that.
1: a three-syllable word. I could understand how that would happen, yeah. and I will well, say that I I watched a lot of footage of him, like in interviews uh, and stuff, whatever I could get my hands on, and he seemed to not mind when people pronounced it Bella, so I was not worried too much about it. Yeah, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry if that dismayed anyone who actually speaks Hungarian and thought you yokels.
0: Well, and having <laughs> having for my part having mostly seen uh like documentary footage about him that was made and produced in the United States, there are a lot of American. Actors and commentators who pronounce it that way. So I genuinely was unaware that there was a different way to pronounce it. And so we got into that discussion. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I would sound like the count. I really do. Uh, so I apologize if that bothered anybody. Uh, I made that decision based on my desire to not make it a comedy. If you would like to write to us, you can do so. We are at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us at facebook.com slash missed in history at missed history on Twitter, missed in history slash missed in history. And you can check out our selection of uh, missed in history goodies at missed in history dot If you would like to get a t-shirt or a mug or any number of other fun accessories, with our logo and some other fun designs on them. If you would like to learn a little bit more about uh, a related topic to what we talked about today, go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. If you type in the phrase pivotal murders in the search bar, you're going to get an article. that's pretty new called Top 10 Historically Pivotal Murders. And it talks about some murders that kind of did things. Uh, they had an effect similar to what this one had, where it really shifted the way a community or, you know, uh, even the world looked at things after it had happened. Uh, so you can do that at our website, at our parent site, HowStuffWorks.com. You can also visit us at MissedInHistory.com for show notes, all of our episodes archived, and the occasional fun blog posts. Uh, we hope you visit us at MistinHistory.com and HowStuffWorks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.